Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 767 with Amy Marin. Amy does a great job of being really specific about the sorts of things that mentally strong people don't do and what to do instead and the cool benefits that can flow to you in terms of confidence, happiness, feeling good and ready to tackle bigger challenges to grow and become all the more awesome at your job. So you'll learn one, the three elements of mental strength, two, the 13 things mentally strong people don't do, and three, how to more effectively tolerate discomfort and distress in our day-to-day lives. So if you want to check out our show notes or a transcript or the links to bits that we've mentioned here, please pay us a visit over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP767. And while there, take a look at some cool stuff like a gold nugget email list, every episode tagged by topic and competency covered, the full text searchable transcripts, a lot of goodies at awesomeatyourjob.com. So come check them out. Now here's a bit about Amy. Amy Marin is editor-in-chief of Very Well Mind, a licensed clinical social worker, psychotherapist, and a psychology lecturer at Northeastern University. She's also an international best-selling author. Her books, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do, and 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do have been translated into 40 languages. The Guardian dubbed her the self-help guru of the moment, and Forbes calls her a thought leadership star. Her TEDx talk, The Secret of Becoming Mentally Strong, is one of the most popular talks of all time with more than 15 million views. She's a regular contributor to Forbes, Business Insider, and Psychology Today with her articles on mental strength, reaching over 2 million readers each month. Big thanks to Amy for sharing her wisdom with us. A big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, and small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Amy. Amy, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, I'm so excited to dig into your wisdom. And I think the first thing that we need to hear about, though, is, is it true you've been living on a sailboat for the last six years? And what is the story? It is true. So I guess six years ago, we decided, hey, why live in Maine if you don't have to? It's kind of cold and dark. So we went on this adventure that was supposed to be six months on a sailboat, but six years later, here I am. And it was my husband's dream. When he was four years old, his bedroom was decorated in a sailboat theme. So he said, someday I'm going to live on a sailboat. But, you know, we realized someday isn't always promised. So just one random day, we said, why not do it? So we packed up a Fiat with a dog, a cat, a laptop, and 
off we went, and here we are, still in the Florida Keys on a sailboat. So as we speak, you're on a sailboat. I am, yes. I don't see anything rocking. I mean, <laughs> <it's>... <laughs> um, yeah, so a lot of the time, because I need super fast internet, we're tied to a dock. So I'm, okay. not, I'm not just bobbing around in the ocean or anything. Mm -hmm. And so has that been working out well for you? You're you're pleased with the decision? And what are some of the, the pros to living on a sailboat maybe others should consider? Yeah, so there are some pros and cons. The pros would be it's kind of a simple life. Again, I have some clothes and a laptop and not much else. And you really don't need much. And like manatees and dolphins come swimming by and there's lots of cool stuff. And of course, during quarantine, it was easy to be on a sailboat because when everybody had to be inside their house, well, my house moves so I could go places and still go out and do things. And I can snorkel, I can swim, I can do lots of fun stuff. But, you know, there are some cons as well. So this is my podcast studio. So recording a podcast from a boat, it's loud sometimes. There's certain things you have to think of with a sailboat, like there's not a ton of room. So we kind of jockey for position of who gets the, the cool space on the couch during the day. And uh, there was an octopus incident that no. <laughs> <laughs> involved an octopus coming through our air conditioning vent. That was not the best day ever, but um... <laughs> that's wild. Well, cool. You're making it work. That's that's exciting. Yes. Well, I'm also excited to hear all about mental strength. You've got a, a series of excellent books, including 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. And I loved your TEDx talk. We will put a, a link to that in the in the show notes for sure. So tell me, when it comes to us humans and, and mental strength, is there a particular surprising discovery you've made about us in the course of your, your practice and research? Well, I guess the first thing was that mental strength really depended on what not to do. We talk so much about all the healthy habits and all the things you should do in life. Exercise. Right. Breathe. And as a therapist, I was taught when people come into your therapy office and they tell you what's going on in their life, figure out what they're already doing well and build on that. And that makes sense on the surface. Like, yeah, I'm going to point out your strengths and we're going to keep doing that. But at some point I thought, well, if I went to go see a physical trainer and they told me to run on the treadmill, yeah, I'm going to run on the treadmill. But if they didn't mention, hey, by the way, that junk food you're eating kind of negates all that work you're doing on the treadmill, I'd be kind of mad. So I thought, you know, let's take a look at this. What are the, the common unhealthy habits that we all do, but yet those little things keep us stuck? And so, for example, you can practice gratitude quite often, but if you still feel sorry for yourself sometimes, it kind of negates the gratitude. So most of us have moments where we feel thankful, but we also have moments where we feel sorry for ourselves. So let's focus on getting rid of that in our lives. And then the good habits you have already become much more effective. Okay. Well, beautiful. So then when it comes to talking about being mentally strong, how do you define that? Is being mentally strong distinct from mentally healthy? Or are they kind of synonymous, interchangeable? Ooh, I'm glad you asked that because they're different. People will say that sometimes like, oh, I wish I could be mentally strong, but I'm depressed. Or I wish I could be mentally strong, but I have anxiety. Not the same thing at all. And it makes more sense to our brains when we think about it in terms of like physical strength and physical health. You go to the gym, you can build physical strength. Yeah, that improves your physical health too. But even a, a weight trainer can still develop like high cholesterol or some sort of physical health problem down the road. You might injure your knee. Mental strength's the same. It's all about the exercises we do every day, the strategies we employ in life, but knowing that despite how much mental strength you have, it doesn't guarantee you won't ever develop a mental health problem. So even when you're mentally strong, you might still develop something like depression, anxiety, OCD. Those things happen to anybody, but 
mental strength can prevent some problems. It can make you feel your best no matter what kind of mental health problems you might be struggling with. Okay, so we've got a distinction. And then so what's the the definition then of a, a mentally strong person is blank or mental strength equals this? Well, I would say the easiest way to define it is that there's three parts to it. The way you think, the way you feel, and the way you behave. So when it comes to thoughts, it's not about like super positive thinking all the time. It's about knowing that your thoughts can be realistic so that, all right, when things are bad, you might just accept, yeah, they're bad. But on the other hand, you want to spend all your mental real estate worrying about things that will never happen or ruminating on things that already did. It's about just taking some control over your mind and your thoughts. And then when it comes to our emotions, sometimes people will be like, oh, be mentally strong. Don't cry. That's not the case either. Sometimes it takes a lot of mental strength to just acknowledge how you feel, to express those feelings, and to know that you can be comfortable even with some uncomfortable emotions. But on the other side of that, there are times when maybe you're so angry you can't think straight, so you need the power to reduce your anger. So the simple way would be just to be in control of your emotions so that they don't control you. And then the last part is about our behavior, the action you take. You can be an optimistic, happy person, but unless you take action, those things don't really matter. So it's about knowing, okay, even on the day I'm tired, I'm still going to go to the gym. Or even though I don't feel like doing this thing, it's the right thing to do, so I'm going to do it anyway. And knowing when to push yourself, but of course also knowing that it's different to, say, run on a sore leg versus a broken ankle. There are days where you need to say, okay, being mentally strong sometimes means taking a break, taking a step back, or even quitting or giving up. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so that's that's nice and clear. All right. So we got a picture of those three things. And tell us, Amy, to what extent are are they learnable? And could you maybe share an inspiring story or, or, or research that says, hey, people make transformations here all the time? Yeah. So it's definitely all learnable and it's things that we can learn and practice and put into our daily lives, these small things, just like All of us could choose to build physical strength by working out and doing some things differently. We can all choose to do things differently when it comes to building mental muscle. And there's lots of stories of, you know, Olympic athletes and Navy SEALs and people who go out there and do really cool things with their lives. But I can share my own story in life and tell you that I don't come by this naturally, but I've learned a lot over the years. As a kid, I was the kind of kid that never raised their hand in class. I actually hated school to the point that I vomited before school every day until about the fourth grade. High school, never spoke in class either. I was the shy kid in the back of the room. I became somebody that was able to give a TED Talk that's now been viewed by 20 million people. And I can do lots of things I never, ever thought I could do before. But it was about practicing and putting those things into place. And as a therapist, I knew some of this stuff, but it wasn't really the the books, the textbooks that taught me anything differently. It was mostly my my life experiences. When I was 23, I lost my mom. When I was 23, my husband passed away. A few years after that, my father-in-law was diagnosed with cancer. It was like this, my 20s were awful. I went through all of this hard stuff, but I learned from it. And what I learned was like, okay, don't sweat the small stuff. It really is a lot to be said for that. There's things that I never thought I could do that I can. And even as a therapist, I'd be teaching other people about their self-limiting beliefs. But at the same time, I think I really believe that I had a lot of limitations that that I didn't. I can get out there and do so many things now that I never thought I could do by putting these things into practice, by giving up unhealthy habits that were holding me back and by truly just saying, OK, let's get out there and, and try these things. Mm-hmm. Well, let's hear the things. So there's there's 13 things mentally strong people don't do. Can you give us that rundown? Sure. You want all 13? Yes, please. 
I'm going to cheat by looking at the back of my book because now that I've written five books, they get a little out of order after a while. So the first one is that mentally strong people don't waste time feeling sorry for themselves. They don't give away their power. They don't shy away from change. They don't focus on things they can't control. They don't worry about pleasing everyone. They don't fear taking calculated risks. They don't dwell on the past. They don't make the same mistakes over and over. They don't resent other people's success. They don't give up after their first failure. They don't fear alone time. They don't feel like the world owes them anything. And they don't expect immediate results. Okay. Thank you. That's well, that, that, that's, the, that's it. That's 13. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Count them up. All right. So then as I hear each of them, that seems to make sense. Like, yeah, it'd be better to not waste time feeling sorry for ourselves. It'd be better to not give away our power. Yeah, it'd be better to not shy away from change. So, yep, yep, yep. That seems good. I'm curious, though, if we are doing some of this stuff, how do we begin to make that change? Yeah, so it's easy to say I don't do those things or I don't do them very often or it's not a problem. But the truth is we all do those things sometimes. I mean, we all expect immediate results, for example. And that's part of the world we live in. We now have Google and Amazon where you can get an answer in the click of a button. You can get something delivered to your door almost immediately. So then when it comes to changing our lives, we think this will happen this week. And you can even look at it with like New Year's resolutions. Most of them go out the window within two weeks. I think January 18th is the day that most people have already given up on their New Year's resolution because we expect things to happen fast. I'm going to lose 100 pounds this year. I'm going to change my life. And it doesn't happen according to our schedule. But Whenever we find ourselves doing these things, the first thing is just just become more aware of it. And even though I've written books on this and I talk about it all the time, I still find myself doing certain things. I give away my power, for example. I'll blame somebody else for putting me in a bad mood or ruining my day or making me do something. Nope, those are all my choices. And just recognizing it, that was the first step. And then being able to say, okay, what am I going to do about it? How do I get rid of this habit? What am I going to do instead? And luckily, there's an antidote for all of this stuff. If you want to stop feeling sorry for yourself, just take a moment and say, well, what do I have to be thankful for? What can I be grateful for in the moment? You find yourself expecting immediate results, find a way to say, okay, now I'm going to figure out uh, how do I track my progress? Whether you're say, I'm going to make a certain amount of money, pay down a certain amount of debt this year, or I want to have this fitness goal. Well, what can I do to track my progress? Might just be as simple as putting an X on a calendar every day so that you don't expect it to happen overnight. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I actually really like these antidotes. Can, <laughs> can I hear 11 more? <laughs> sure. Uh, you know, there's And there's a lot of, uh, all of them, there's science behind it. It's not just things that I made up. But if we were to talk about not fearing calculated risk, for example, we tend to think that our level of fear is equal to the level of risk. So applying for that promotion feels scary, so I shouldn't do it because it must be risky. The truth is that our emotions have nothing to do with the actual level of risk that we face. And so the antidote to this one is just taking a look from a rational perspective, which in some cases might be taking a step back and saying, what would I say to my friend who had this problem? Because it takes a lot of the emotion out of it. So if you said, gee, I have this opportunity to apply for a promotion, but it feels scary, so I don't want to embarrass myself. Well, if your friend came to you and said that, you'd be like, hey, go for it. Or I think you'll do a good job. You'd probably have some kind words. Unless you really thought that they shouldn't apply, then you might be willing to be honest and say, actually, maybe not yet. Well, give yourself those same words, and it takes a lot of the sting out of it, the emotion out of it, and you can make a better decision. Or if we were to say, let's talk about um, not giving away your power, if we went back to that one, the antidote to that one is changing your language. How often do we say, my boss makes me work late? 
Nope, your boss doesn't make you work late. It's a choice. Maybe there's a consequence. Maybe your job would be at risk. But just recognizing, all right, the expectation is I'll get this report done by tomorrow. I'm going to have to work late to do it. But that's my choice. And there's something super empowering about just flipping your language around so you can say, it's up to me to decide how I'm going to do this. Another one is about not resenting other people's success. Well, how often do we say flip through social media and you look at other people and you're like, oh, they're happier than I am. They're healthier. They're wealthier. They're more attractive. They have a better life than I do. It's those comparisons that keep us stuck. And studies will show that if you look at somebody as an opinion holder rather than your competitor, then you learn from them. So if you just look at somebody that, say, drives a really nice car, you might be able to say, well, what can I learn from that person? Maybe they have a really cool job or maybe they know how to negotiate a good deal on a car. or Maybe they gave up a, something in their life so they could afford this car. But just think, what can I learn from that person rather than that person's better than I am? And it keeps you from feeling bad about it. When it comes to failure, we have this idea that, you know, failing feels bad and I don't want to feel bad. So therefore, shouldn't put myself out there. Well, one of the insane things we do is we talk about success stories. So they looked at high school science teachers and they asked. All the science teachers were telling kids about, say, Edison, Einstein, all these famous scientists who were really successful. And the more that they talked about how successful these people were, the kids' grades started to decline. So then they had them talk about how all of these famous people failed. Edison had a bazillion experiments that didn't go well. Einstein had some theories that probably were a little off base. And when they started talking about these people's failures, the students' grades started going up because then they knew, well, gee, failure is actually part of the process of the way to succeed. You have to take a risk, put yourself out there. You have to guess sometimes. You have to do things that are going to be really hard. And once the students started doing that, they took more risks. They raised their hand. They guessed on an answer if they didn't know. But they were willing to, to do harder things, and their grades went up. And I think that's a great lesson for all of us. When we look around at you know these dot-com businesses or successful business leaders who now have programs out there and they're trying to get us to buy them, we hear about how successful they were, but we don't always know what it took for them to get there. Just by studying famous failures, it will give you courage to try so that then you'll know, okay, well, if I fail, it's not the end of the world. It's just part of the process. I love it. And, and how about not shying away from change? Yeah. So that one, a lot of people will come into my therapy office and they'll say, I'm ready to change my life. But then when we talk about making change, they're like, eh, you know, I'm not so sure about that. Change is uncomfortable. And we like it when things are predictable, even though they're bad. If it's familiar, somehow we think, well, that's not too bad. So with this one, there's a few different things that you can do. But sometimes just putting a name to your emotions goes a long way. So if you just label how you're feeling, OK, I'm anxious, I'm sad, it takes a lot of the sting out of it. And there's science behind this one, too, that our brains and our bodies need a little help making sense of things. So when you have all these stress hormones going on, just take a moment and be like, OK, I'm feeling anxious right now you automatically feel a little bit less anxious. And then the next thing you can do is to, once you identify how you're feeling, is to be able to say, well, is this a friend or an enemy right now? Because so often we talk about feelings like they're either positive or negative. People will say, well, excitement's a positive emotion and anger is a negative emotion. But when you think about it, any feeling has the power to be positive or negative. Yeah, anger is helpful if you stand up for your friend, maybe, or it gives you courage to stand up for yourself. It's not helpful if it causes you to call people names or to say things that you wouldn't normally do or say. But excitement, on the other hand, we love it. When you're looking forward to a vacation and you're excited, that feels good. But what if somebody comes to you with like this get rich quick scheme and they guarantee you that there's no way you're going to fail? Ooh. 
No way I can fail, Amy? Right. Sign me up now. (laughs) That's why we see really smart people fall prey to like really stupid get rich quick schemes because they're so excited about the payoff that they overlook the risk. So sometimes it's just helpful to say, how am I feeling right now? Put a name to that and then say, is that helpful or harmful? And if it's helpful, embrace it. If it's harmful, then you say, okay, what do I do about this and make a different choice? Oh, Amy, I love this so much. You know, positive, quote unquote, positive emotions and negative emotions. I guess we we might relabel that as pleasant emotions and unpleasant emotions. Like it's pleasant to feel excited (laughs) about the get rich quick scheme, but that's not going to serve you well. It's, It's going to be harmful to you. So you could say that's and I don't even like the words positive and negative in relation to emotions because they they get things a little bit fuzzy versus friend versus enemy. I love it. And I want to dig a little deeper here on the emotional management stuff because, um, all right. So you've probably heard this poem and uh, it's very short, so I'll read it in its entirety from Rumi, the guest house. And it has a perspective on emotions. A couple guests have brought it up. They say, this being human is a guest house. Every morning is a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome, entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So that's a poem. It's, uh, I think there's some profundity. I mean, I, I've, I, I chew on that and I think, wow, that sounds like a cool, free, liberating way to live, but I don't know if it's optimal and it may be harmful. And uh, what's your hot take, Amy, when it comes to emotional management, calling things friends or enemies versus they're all just guests. They come and they go and they serve us. I think there's a lot of power in just sometimes allowing emotions to come in. I think a lot of our suffering in life comes from our attempts to fight feelings. So something's anxiety provoking. We don't like to feel that way. So then we try to get rid of the anxiety rather than solve the problem. I think life gets a lot better when we get better at answering the question, should I solve the problem or solve how I feel about the problem? Sometimes we have a problem that's that's huge, but it's so anxiety provoking and I feel anxious about it. So I just want to solve my anxiety rather than tackle the problem. This is why people develop, say, substance abuse issues or uh, compulsive behaviors. It feels better to do this right now than it does to tackle that problem. So I'm going to do what, what's in front of me, whether that's grab a drink or eat too much, uh, something to take care of my feelings rather than take care of the problem. And I can't tell you, I mean, I've noticed this in my own life, but it's something I constantly work with people in my therapy office about is just honoring our emotions sometimes and knowing that the more we run from them, the more they just keep following us and they show up wherever we are and they show up in different areas of our lives. So if you're sad, sometimes that helps you honor something you lost and you have to go through those sad feelings. But instead of going through them, we do a lot of effort to try to go around, do everything we can to go under, over, skip it. We distract ourselves constantly because emotions, certain ones are uncomfortable. We don't want to be bored. We don't want to be lonely. Who wants to be sad or anxious? And in today's world, it's so easy to distract ourselves with our phones, with constant noise in our ears, all the things we can do so that we don't have to tolerate a moment of discomfort. But if we spend our whole lives trying to just avoid being uncomfortable or making it so we don't experience emotions that are unpleasant, life gets even worse and it's this vicious cycle. 
But I also don't think we have to tolerate it. So again, when your emotions are, say, an enemy, when they're not helpful, they don't just have to sit and suffer with them. Sometimes we need to say, "Mm, maybe I should do something else. If you allowed sadness to stick around too long, you might find yourself in bed and then it lies to you. People become depressed. Their depression tells them, don't go to work today. It's You just stay in bed and you'll feel better. Well, nobody's ever felt better by staying in bed all day. But our emotions can lie to us. It can make us irrational. If we took the example of sadness again, never negotiate when you're sad. You'll take a horrible deal when you're sad because you'll think, I don't want to counter offer because I just don't know that my ego can handle one more blow. So I'll accept whatever deal you offer me. Or when we're anxious about something, our anxiety from our personal life spills over into work. So Let's say you just had a health test. You're waiting on the results. You go to work. Your boss offers you a new opportunity. You're going to be like, no, no, thank you. I don't I don't think I can handle that because your anxiety spills over and you're not even going to recognize it. So as much as we talk about emotional intelligence, I don't think we're there. I think we need to just, just go back to the basics sometimes and figure out how am I feeling? Is that feeling helpful or harmful? And if it's harmful, how do I change my emotional state? Mm-hmm. And let's say, how does one change their emotional state? Let's say you, you're figured out, okay, hey, I'm sad, <laughs> but I've got a negotiation coming up in half an hour. Uh, I recognize that me being sad is not great for this upcoming challenge. But nonetheless, I feel sad. What do I do about it? Yeah. So let's, let's say, you know, you lost your pet last week and you're sad about it. Obviously, being sad helps you honor that loss. It's okay to be sad for a while, that sort of a thing. But in that moment where you're like, I'm about to walk into this meeting and I need to negotiate an amazing deal, then you can do two things. Number one is change how you think and change your behavior. So we tend to do something that keeps us in whatever state we're in. When you're anxious, maybe you pace. When you're sad, you just sit and stare at the wall. Look down. Right. And those kinds of things reinforce how we feel. So sometimes you need to act the opposite. So get up and go, go for a jog or you look at a funny cat video online, or you call somebody and talk about a completely different subject just to shift it. And you can also change what you're thinking about. When you're anxious, maybe you're replaying something over and over again, or dwelling on the worst case scenario. Or when you're sad, you're just thinking about more sad things. Take a moment and purposely think about something that's happier, just to give yourself that little mood boost when you need it in the moment. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you. Okay. Well, let's see. There's a few more things that uh, mentally strong people don't do. And they want to hear some antidotes if you find yourself doing it. How about when we're focused on things that we can't control? What's the antidote? That one is about sometimes just pausing and saying, okay, what is within my control? Might only be your effort, your attitude, your behavior, but it's tough to do. We want to control the outcome. Or we find ourselves doing these things too. Like, let's say you have a pain in your knee. And suddenly you start Googling and, you know, within two minutes you find out either it's nothing or you're about to die, depending on which which website you look at. And so to control your anxiety, maybe you just keep researching, 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 and that's not helpful. Well, what can you control? Well, you can control when you call the doctor, if you make an appointment or what you do about it. So sometimes it's just about taking a step back and saying, what's within my control right now? And then taking some kind of action, but making sure that that action is about moving forward, ending up in the endless loop of research you could research forever and what's that going to do or if you have something coming up this weekend and you want to make sure it's a sunny day because you have outdoor plans checking the weather compulsively every two minutes isn't going to change 
the outcome. So maybe you just ask yourself, well, okay, what's the worst case scenario? And then kind of play that through of, all right, well, if it rains this weekend, what's going to happen? I My plans get ruined. Well, if my plans get ruined, what will I do instead? And just playing that tape through sometimes reminds us that, all right, even if the worst case scenario did happen, it's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. And if we're worried about pleasing everyone, what do we do? Uh, again, that one is uh, a difficult one for chronic people pleasers when you tend to always say yes to everything. Sometimes it's just a matter of stepping back and having a new default answer. Because if somebody calls and says, hey, can you do me this favor? And you always say yes. Take a moment and say, ah, oh, I'm going to check my schedule and get back to you. I'm just having a new script. And maybe, maybe you already know the answer is going to be yes. Or maybe you already know this is something I really don't want to do. But in that moment, it's hard to say that. So just having a, a pre-planned script like, let me check my schedule and get back to you. Or I'll have to see if that works for me, but I'll let you know. And just having that little pause sometimes can then give you enough time to think, okay, is this something I really want to do or not? And then you can get back to the person with a better answer. But I find a lot of times people pleasers, just their default is to always say yes to everything. So they need a little bit of time to decide, do I really want to do this or not? And what if we're people pleasing, not just in the saying yes or no, but in the in the broader sense of what we choose to ask for, like, oh, I don't want to ask for that. That I, that you know, that might be too much. You know, I, I don't want to inconvenience them. It, in, in that sort of a way. Anytime we're afraid of something, the best way to overcome that fear of saying, "Okay, I'm afraid to ask for something," or "I'm afraid to take care of myself," it's just about doing it in small steps. So maybe you ask for a little less than you actually want just to see what happens as an experiment. I'm a huge fan of saying, let's try behavioral experiments and test the waters. Sometimes people will be like, oh, I can't ask for that because my boss might be mad or I can't ask my coworker for that favor or I can't speak up and say, actually, that's an unreasonable deadline. We'll try it and see what happens. And to know that you don't have to feel brave to act brave. Just put yourself out there and do it anyway as an experiment. If something terrible happens, you can learn from it. But I think nine times out of 10, you might discover that the worst isn't going to happen. People aren't going to be mad. They're not going to freak out. They're not going to look down on you if you ask for what you need. Mm-hmm. Certainly. And I like that notion of the little steps and that, that might even just be like, try writing the email <laughs> or try writing out the script. Try asking for, <laughs> you know, instead of saying, you know, there's no way that's going to happen, boss. Forget about it. He was like, hey, you know, actually, that's going to be very challenging based upon these other things. And it may require that I'm up until midnight if we don't reprioritize some things. So how do you think about the priorities? Like, you got to stay up till midnight, Arr! you know, versus, oh, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. Let's, you know, see what we can do here. Cool. And if you're dwelling on the past, how do we undwell? So, yeah, sometimes we dwell on like something bad that happened six weeks ago. Sometimes it's like the conversation that happened at lunch. Maybe you get home from work after a bad day and you just keep replaying over and over again and thinking of all the things you wish you would have said, all the things you wish the other person hadn't said. It's like this tape that gets stuck in our head and we rehash it over and over and over again. So one of my favorite exercises for this one is to distract yourself. We call it changing the channel in your brain. And we're pretty bad at it at first. So maybe you had a bad day, you get home from work and you're still thinking about that bad thing that happened. And you say, well, don't think about that. Well, you're actually going to think about it more. So I'll do this exercise with people often. We can do it right now if you like, where I say, spend about 20 seconds thinking about white bears. White bears, white bears, white bears, polar bears, stuffed white bears, as many white bears as you can. Like the Coca-Cola advertisement? Exactly. Mm -hmm. They're so adorable. 
Unless they're mauling something, I guess. <laughs> white, right. bears, white bears, white bears, white bears. <laughs> so then spend the next 20 seconds thinking about absolutely anything you want. But whatever you do, do not think about a white bear. Well, yes, it's challenging. I'm like, battery recharging. Recharging batteries. <laughs> battery rechargeable. <laughs> it's hard. I'm drifting. <laughs> okay. And then one more quick thing then. For the next 20 seconds, see how far you can get from the alphabet from Z to A. See if you can get all the way through the alphabet backwards. Okay. Ready, ready set, go. Out loud? Yep. Okay. Z, Y, X, W, V, U, T, S, R, Q, P, O, N, M, L K J I H G F E D C B A. Oh, that's impressive that you just oh, did that. You. Good work. Thank you. So, <laughs> when I said think about when I said think about white bears, did a white bear pop up in your head at least one? Yes. And then when I said don't think about white bears, think about anything you want. Did you find did a little white bear pop up maybe at least once? Oh yeah. And then how about when you just went through the alphabet backwards? Did you think about any white bears then? Well, no, I was trying really hard to impress you and the listeners by <laughs> nailing it. So I was putting all my mental energy there. <laughs> well, let me tell you, I was impressed. That was actually really Thank fast. You. That's that's what it's all about, baby. <laughs> and if, that is a, an example of how to change the channel in your brain. If you tell yourself, don't think about white bears or don't think about that awful conversation, it's going to pop up into your head. But if you give yourself a little task to do at home, you're probably not going to be like, okay, I'm going to go through the alphabet backwards. But you might give yourself something to do like, okay, instead of sitting on the couch and rehashing this awful thing that happened earlier today over and over again and staying stuck in a bad mood, what can I do? And it might be about calling a friend to talk about a completely different subject. Maybe you go outside and do something. Maybe you say, I'm going to organize my closet for 10 minutes. But give yourself something to do. Sometimes getting up, moving around. The point is, when you're dwelling on something that already happened, you can't change it. You can learn from it. But when you just rehash it and ruminate on it over and over again, you stay stuck in a bad mood. And then telling yourself, don't think about it, actually makes it worse. But if you get up and go do something, give yourself a, an activity, it can boost your mood just a little bit. And even though you're probably going to eventually go back to thinking about it again, when you feel a little bit better, you might be able to see it from a different angle and say, okay, maybe it wasn't so bad. Or maybe the next time this comes up, I'll, I'll have a different strategy. But the point is, you just don't want to sit and dwell on something that makes you feel bad and keep dwelling and then you feel worse. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I dig it. I dig it. And I'm, I'm thinking in particular that the alphabet backwards is an example of, it it's a, has a little bit of a challenge or game-like quality to it. And I'm thinking about if there's a quick game, like, I don't know, Wordle from the New York Times, there's been a lot of fun, or, or Tetris, or I don't know, online math problems or something. It seems like maybe just maybe it's just me, but like something that it makes a bit of a demand upon you. Like, I'm going to have to try to apply my attention here in order to prevail. And I like prevailing, so I'm going to use just about all my attention on the thing. Right. And then that because that requires your mental energy, it just gives your brain a bit of a break. And sometimes we need that because, I mean, sometimes bad things do happen. And I'm not necessarily talking about something traumatic because sometimes when people have PTSD, they need to get professional help because it does stay stuck in their brains. But when other bad things happen and we're just keep thinking about it over and over again, and maybe you try to put a positive spin on it or something, but you just can't get unstuck. Sometimes you just need to find something to give your brain a break so you can feel a little bit better before you go back and think about it again. All right. And so if we are making the same mistakes repeatedly, what's our antidote there? So of course, we just we want to learn from our mistakes so that we don't repeat them. And quite often, we shame ourselves for making a mistake like, oh, I'm such an idiot, or I'm a bad person. 
Well, guess what? When you think you're a bad person, you're going to think, oh, I'm doomed to repeat that mistake. We'll see this with teenagers sometimes. Like if a, if a kid messes up a lot and his parents shames him and says, you know, like, oh, you're an idiot or you're a bad kid. Well, guess what? When he's 15 and somebody says, hey, you want to try drugs? Who's going to try the drugs? The kids that thinks I'm a bad person or the kid who's when he messed up was just taught. No, I mess up sometimes, but I'm a good kid. Well, we know the kid who thinks I'm a bad person is like, I'm going to make a bad choice because that's who I am. Well, we do that to ourselves as adults. Like, oh, when we mess up, we think, well, I'm not smart enough. I'm stupid. I, I can't ever do anything right. When you think that way, you're going to then think, well, I'm incapable of doing better next time. So just catching how harsh we are on ourselves sometimes and saying, well, how do I talk to myself the same way I'd talk to a friend again? You self-compassion. If you end up shaming yourself, remind yourself, no, I just messed up and that's okay. I'm capable of doing better next time. Mm -hmm. And if we are uncomfortable being alone and with silence, what do you recommend? Mm, so this one takes some practice. So sometimes people will say, no, I love alone time. And then I'll say, well, what do you do when you're alone? And they'll say, well, I text my friends or I'm scrolling through social media. But they're not really alone with their thoughts. They're sort of consuming stuff. They're uh, listening to podcast episodes. They're doing something. But this one's really about sitting alone with your thoughts which can be uncomfortable. Most of us want to be productive. We want to be doing something. And the thought of being alone with our brains is, is scary. So one of the strategies for this one is to just schedule a date with yourself. It might be that you go to dinner. Maybe you go watch a movie. Maybe you go for a walk on the beach. Go do something all by yourself. And you don't have the pressure to perform, to make somebody else happy. You don't have to make pleasant conversations. Just go do what you want to do. And it, make it more pleasant to spend time with yourself. And then it becomes less scary over time. And people will say, well, you know, gosh, this is hard or it's embarrassing to do these things alone or I'm not comfortable. But start small. Maybe it's just taking a, a quick walk. Maybe it's going somewhere to eat where you at least know somebody, the waitress or somebody there. But just go do these little small things. And as you become more comfortable with yourself, you get to be more comfortable with the things going on in your own brain. Okay. And finally, if we do feel the world owes us something, well, one, how do I identify that? Because I imagine many people will deny that. Oh, no, I don't do that, Amy. Uh, and, and two, if we catch ourselves in your description, what do we do about it? Yeah. Uh, you know, I hear like older people say, oh, the younger generation is, feels entitled. We're so entitled. <laughs> right. But the truth is we're all entitled sometimes, right? We think, well, geez, I deserve better than this. And of course, sometimes we do deserve better. You don't deserve to be treated poorly by somebody or you don't uh, deserve to be abused. But on the other hand, yeah, sometimes you have to wait in line a little while longer than you wanted or sometimes life isn't fair. But when you catch yourself just leaving a little bit of a sense of entitlement, uh, to take a step back and just remind yourself like why you're keeping score, because so many people will say, well, I'm a good person. I deserve better or I'm going to put all this good stuff out into the universe but then they're really only doing it because they expect it to come back to them. They're like, oh, if I earn enough karma points, then good things will happen. So just remember that whatever it is you have to offer the world isn't a loan. It's a gift. You, you have plenty of things to give the world. But if you always expect to get the exact amount of things back that you're putting out into the world, you're not going to be happy. So just knowing it's wonderful that you have gifts and talents and skills and things that you can give to the world, but you're not guaranteed that just because you're a nice person, good things are going to come your way. Mm -hmm. Indeed. And uh, I want to ask you, we had uh, another podcast guest, Robert Glazer. Do you, you know him? I know of him. Yep. Well, he quoted you in his email. <laughs> so you got that going for you. Uh, and I really like this a lot. 
You say, the more you practice tolerating discomfort, the more confidence you'll gain in your ability to accept new challenges. Now, that sounds true. Do you have some awesome studies or data or research backing that up as well? Yeah. So I guess when it comes to discomfort, you know, we do in therapy, something we teach people is distress tolerance skills. And so often, again, our default is to run from distress. But I see it all the time in my therapy office when people learn to tolerate distress. The things that they thought were really scary really aren't that scary anymore. So distress tolerance skills can be anything from developing a mantra in your brain that you repeat over and over so that when you start thinking, ah, I can't handle this, or sometimes it's just about tolerating something a little longer than you think that you can. So often we'll think, oh, I can't stand this. Well, you can. And you'll train your brain to see things a little bit differently if you tolerate it a little bit longer than you think you can. So I love to run. One of my challenges is I, I try to run a six-minute mile every day. I can't quite do it yet, but I do it. I attempt to do it anyway and never fail about the three-quarter mile mark. My brain tells me you can't do this. But I know my brain's lying, like I can keep running that pace. And despite the fact, though, that my brain will keep telling me you're, you're too tired, your lungs can't hack it, your legs are going to give out, whatever it is. It, we go through this lengthy list of reasons why my brain wants me to quit because it's uncomfortable to try to run. But I know <laughs> I can trick my brain or I can prove to my brain that it's wrong. And slowly over time, my brain now is like, OK, I, I know that you're going to keep running anyway, but I'm going to keep trying these things on you. And our brain will try to trick us and tell us that we can't stand it, but we can. And the, the best strategy I know what to do is to just prove your brain wrong. Know that your brain will underestimate you. It will tell you that you're not capable, you're not competent. But when it tells you that, just say, okay, challenge accepted. And push yourself a little harder and, and see what happens. And over time, you can train your brain to see you as a little more competent, a little more capable. And that will give you the confidence to know, okay, I can handle being uncomfortable. Okay. Well, so, and that could happen either through doing the thing that is unpleasant, either through uh, physical exercise, you know, running, as you mentioned. I've actually been, <laughs> I, I got on a Wim Hof kick, if you know this guy, mm, and I've been I dunking do. my hands and face into ice water. And, <laughs> well, actually, it's actually rather refreshing <laughs> in and of itself, but it's also hurts and, and is unpleasant. And so that's kind of the challenge is like, oh, I really want to take my hand out of this ice water now. I was like, well, I will do that in 10 seconds. And, yeah. and in so doing, I, I I don't have the 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 data here, but I think that this is doing something good for me and the ability to tolerate discomfort and, and have confidence in my abilities. So I, I guess, Amy, I'm not crazy. Shoving my face and hands in ice water can be helpful in this way. Yeah. And that is, you know, right along the exact same theory. And that's one thing that I have refused to do. I grew up in rural Maine where a lot of people don't have running water, to be honest. Um, there's still a lot of poverty there. My parents both grew up in extreme poverty and worked really hard to make sure that I had hot water. <laughs> so I like I cannot do that to my parents to then say, hey, guess what? I'm taking a cold shower for fun. So I don't do that, but it's absolutely along the same lines to say, okay, how do I put myself in an uncomfortable situation and then prove to myself that, yeah, this is uncomfortable, but I can stand it. And it's like, then when you teach yourself, I'm going to do this a little longer than I would like to, it just teaches you, yeah, I can go out there and do hard things. And although it's uncomfortable, it's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Amy, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Gosh, no, I think you've covered a little, so much about mental strength. I appreciate that. Oh, thank you. All right. Well, then, can you start with a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? 
Uh, so something my mother always used to tell me was, never let your morals get in the way of doing what's right. She didn't make that quote up, but I'm not sure who said it. But it's something I remind myself quite often that <laughs> there's plenty of things out there. Sometimes it may not be what I think is the moral decision. But then when you really stop and think about it, you think, no, but this is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite study or piece of research? Uh, I think one of my favorite studies is um, the one where they took a look at um, older men who were like in their 80s and they decided to rewind the clock. Most of these men were uh, had some physical health issues, maybe some cognitive decline, but what you'd expect from from elderly men. And they decided to put them in a situation where they pretended like it was back in like 1950, back when they would have still been vibrant men in their 40s and uh, physically capable. And they made their surroundings look like it was 1950. And they found that by doing that, some of these men started to stand up straighter, their health got better, their mental health improved, their cognitive abilities improved, simply because they thought this is how they were supposed to be. And I guess what I take away from that study is sometimes we think, okay, whether it's about aging or it's about a person with a certain illness or ailment or whatever it is, we have this notion of, this is how I should be when I'm 40. This is how I should be if I have high cholesterol or some physical health issue. But it's really our minds that make all of those things happen. And so if we can just remind ourselves, well, if I want to behave like the person I want to become. I want to be a, a vibrant, healthy, younger person, or I want to be somebody who's happy and full of life. I want to be a confident person. Act like that person now and you can become it. Okay. And a favorite book? Uh, my favorite recent book is The Gift, written by Edith Eager. She's a Holocaust survivor. Mm -hmm. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? Hmm. You know, I one of the things I do that still probably helps me the most is I keep a paper calendar so I can have it in front of me. And so I can look at <laughs> dates and things going on and still writing down lists and having that with me at all times instead of just relying on technology helps me feel better. Mm -hmm. And a favorite habit, something you do that helps you be awesome at your job? Um, I would say running every day. Mm -hmm. And is there a key nugget you share that people quote back to you often? They retweet, they Kindle book highlight. It's the Amy original they can't resist yeah i think i said something to the effect of whomever said time heals everything lied to us mm -hmm. it's what you do with your time that matters all right and if folks want to learn more or get in touch where would you point them uh, my website amy morin lcsw.com and you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs i would say set a goal this week and challenge yourself to do it and then check in and see what happened and what can you learn from it and ask yourself, what did I do to become mentally stronger this week? All right, Amy, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you much luck and success with you and mental strength. Thank you. I appreciate it. I loved Amy's simple tip on if you're dwelling on the past and you're kind of stuck in a recurring loop there, ruminating, it's great to Find a super mentally engaging means of forcing your brain to go elsewhere, like doing the alphabet backwards. I'm thinking about a quick round of Tetris or Wordle, or uh, there's a little Stroop app in which with the red and green colors and text, if you can find it on the app store, it surprisingly demands all of my mental energy and it takes one minute to do. So cool tip there easy way to 
shift away from the rumination and the past and get into something more helpful. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP767. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.